Next question. Mark Jacobs had 37 models dye their hair varying shades of pastels for his New York Fashion Week show. 37 models. Is that faux or fashion? I'm going to go ahead and say that it's... it's If you're not subscribed to the Fashion League newsletter, you're missing out. Our email newsletter helps you prepare for your next career move. The newsletter has our job board, which features listings from some of your favorite brands and publishers. Plus, you can use our handy career guide to figure out which direction you'd like to take your career next. We also throw in some for fashion trivia, of course, and some other fun stuff, but you have to subscribe to the newsletter to discover for yourself. So you can head to the show notes. There's a link to sign up there or head over to www.fashionleague.io. Hi, I'm Michaela Bloomfield, and on this episode of the Fashion League podcast, I had the pleasure of speaking with another American living in Paris. Sierra Costa Noble. Sierra is a global celebrity hairstylist and educator, meaning she works with beauty brands, doing corporate trainings on product knowledge, etc. And her work has been featured in magazines like Mary Claire, Martha Stewart Weddings, Harper's Bazaar. Plus, some of her celebrity clientele includes Taraji P. Henson, Mary J. Blige, Solange Knowles, Janelle Monet, Kim Kardashian. Sierra and I met kind of serendipitously when Julie Wilson, the beauty director at Cosmo magazine, happened to be in Paris on a press trip and posted on Instagram, hey, anyone in Paris want to grab dinner? And so about five of us met up for dinner at this super cute African restaurant, Villa Maasai, and it's in the second arrondissement in Paris. And thank God Sierra picked out this restaurant because I was struggling when Julie asked, where do I suggest we go for dinner? I had zero suggestions. I had lived in Paris for barely two months at this point. So I only knew the usual suspects that people typically recommend when they visit Paris. (laughs) Tourists. Anyway, thankfully Sierra came through with this great place. Food was great. Drinks were tasty. We had a great time. Anyway, here is my interview with Sierra Costa Noble. Use the promo code RTR Fashion League to get 40% off your membership at Rent the Runway. A Rent the Runway membership gives you access to thousands of designer products from gala gowns to office wear to accessories and sunglasses. And it allows you to have a rotating closet while reducing your consumption and your impact on the environment. So that is RTR Fashion League promo code, and you can use it at rentherunway.com. Hi, Sierra. Hello. How are you? Listen, I am well on this gloomy Parisian morning. (laughs) It is gloomy. Something that I've been meaning to ask. So one, where are you from? And at dinner, I wanted to ask you, how did you get your French so phenomenal? Like, it's really good. (laughs) I was like, she sounds American, but this <laughs> French, <laughs> I'm trying to get to this level. I have to say it's the biggest compliment because when people, when especially when French people are like, oh my God, like you're American, are you sure? <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. So I'm actually, I'm originally from DC, you know, DMV, Virginia. So lived in DC, lived in Virginia, most of my life, Alexandria, Virginia. So right outside of DC. 
I have to be honest, I worked really hard for the language. When I arrived here, I didn't know anyone at all. And I was alone. And I realized quickly that I could easily be taken advantage of through a few situations that happened. And I was like, I need to master this language so I can defend myself and argue. And genuinely wanting to argue was the number one reason. Like needing to be able to argue was the number one reason that motivated me to learn French. But yeah, I studied a lot. I, I it, it sounds like a crazy story, but I am someone who is quite studious and I'm really great at learning things alone without like necessarily in a group setting or in a class setting. So what helped me most is when I first moved here, I lived in Saint-Germain-des-Prés and I used my neighborhood. I would I would went I went to the library, I bought all these books on, you know, grammar, vocabulary and all these things and I I set a theme, you know, every week had a theme and in that theme I would choose a few verbs and then I would try to work those verbs into sentences and words, you know, like the theme would be, okay, you know, grocery shopping. And so it would be everything that comes along with grocery shopping, the questions you would need to ask, the the, the fruits and vegetables and things. And I would practice with people. I would go to the same grocery store. I would practice with everyone there. I used my neighborhood. I, I harassed everyone and I'm not a timid person. So I felt comfortable just putting myself out there sounding like a fool and asking people like, what's your favorite color? <laughs> That I, people I don't, I don't even know. Yeah, but after six months of really like go, doing that nonstop every single day, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm actually speaking this language. We have like a different uh, approach in America where it's like greeting everyone with a smile and everyone mm-hmm. is just so happy. How did you find that courage to just start talking to people? I have to say, I'm, at my age now, I would never be able to do what I did. Honestly, I know knowing myself. I was 22. So I was I think the age plays large role. I was 22, completely oblivious to how daunting or idiotic or how crazy what I was doing was. Just like, "Oh, this is the idea I have. I'm going to do it." Just kind of like jumping jumping into it and making it work. Now at 33, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'd be like, "Oh, I don't know if I should walk up to this random person. Oh, I don't know." I should be asking people who I don't know. So I really think it has to be age. And I am kind of one of those people who was just like, I could care less what people think about me or if, or like being embarrassed, those kind of things never controlled me. Like, oh, well, this is probably embarrassing. It's like, no, I'm okay with being embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm okay with that. People stare, people laugh, whatever. Like as long as I'm getting to my goal, it, I know, I know my, my mindset. So I think that's what but helped me overcome it. But really, truly age. I think being 22, and first time in the country and being alone and just like feeling like I need whatever I need to do to get master this language I'm willing to do. It's completely different than the lived experience of a 30 year old. And I think that you kind of inherently start to develop certain fears and certain like protocols and things you do and you don't do. Where at 20, in your 20, early 20s, you're just like, I'm just living. Hmm. That must be what my block is. I'm like practicing just ordering a coffee. Michaela, all you need to do is order a coffee in French and let's just get through this. It, I build it up so much. You mentioned that you were here solo. At, were you solo traveling before? Was this your first time in France? Like, What was that experience like arriving here again? Well, I had been to Paris two times previously because my best friend, my, my sister, she studied abroad and she actually has family here. So I came to France the first, my first time coming, I was 18 and loved it. It was my actual, it was my first time leaving the States. So it just opened me to a whole other world. And I think that I got to see a part of Paris from a non-touristy point of view, because I was here with her family who lives here and they really showed me all around. And it was, I was like, oh, this is a, just a different lifestyle. I would love to do a year here and just 
have a sabbatic year. That was my thoughts. So when my last year of undergrad, I had the opportunity to study abroad and I said, okay, I jumped on it right away. And my, my best friend, you know, she flew in with me for the first two weeks I was here. It helped me kind of get the apartment set up, get everything together since French is her native language. And then she left and then I was just here. <laughs> and so I didn't know anyone and I did not know the language, but I was open to new opportunities and new changes. But I quickly realized coming from the States and being quite independent and just knowing how things work and then being here and not being completely out of my comfort zone and not knowing at all how things work, how to understand what people are saying, how to communicate. I felt like I couldn't even really be myself. So in my mind, it was like, okay, the language barrier, if I can get the language, then I could be able to get to some of the other things I want to do. And when do you think your language skills were like? I can accomplish basic tasks. How long were you here to land on that? This is not a comparison to other people. No, this is for you. No, no, before I give my answer, because when I tell people, they're like, oh, you know, but people who, you know, I still have friends here who met me the first time, but the first week here. So they know they have seen the journey and they'll tell people like Sierra's story is pretty amazing because we watched her go from nothing. In six months, I was... I was conversational. Like I, in six months, I could understand what people were saying and I could speak back. Within a year, mm-hmm. people thought that I had been here for five years. They were like, oh, so you, your French is so good because you've been here for five years. I'm like, I, I only, I've only been here for a year. Mm-hmm. So, But that did come with me. I am an extremely studious person. Like I, yeah, I am the kind of person who... Just for things for myself. You know, my, my, my best friend makes fun of me to this day. She was like, I called her one day and I was like, you know what? I really need to learn this language. I'm going to delete all the music. You know, it was back in the day. So it's like, you know, with, with the little iPod. <laughs> I was like, I'm going, to, I'm going to delete all the music off my iPod. And I'm only going to put French things on there so that that's the only thing I can listen to. And that I'm a little bit obsessive. So that's, <laughs> it did work because, but that's, I, I am very much a crazy studious person and like dedicated. So this is my goal. I'm going to do it nonstop every single day until I reach my goal. So yes, I would say within a year, I was speaking French really well. I also have a conspiracy theory that people who are able to mimic others, like even do like similar sounds of people, kind of have an advantage. Do you, are you able to mimic people? I'm I'm getting a sample size. So (laughs) no, not, yeah, I wish that I had, I can't mimic a thing. No, I have always said my whole life. The only thing that, the only thing that has been, that comes easy, has come easy to me has been hair. Everything else I've had to like, the only thing that has helped me is that, that my personality trait of being someone who will research and study and spend hours obsessing over something. That has been my curse and my blessing. (laughs) I can't mimic a thing. I don't have a musical ear. I don't have any of the the things that should make me great at languages at all. But I will study for hours and hours. Relentlessly. So that's that's the only thing. When did you get into hair? When did you know that's something you wanted to pursue? Oh, that's such a great question. So I have four brothers. I'm the only girl. And I have loved hair. You know, I have, you know, obviously I have a mother and my mom is not at all a girly girl. So my, her mother, my grandmother was very much a girly girl, would not leave the house without her wig perfectly prepped, skin on point, outfit. I mean, even just to check the mail. She's like, you just never know who you're going to see. And she also was very tall. And my mother was quite complete opposite, very tomboyish, beautiful woman, but just not at all into any of those things. And so she just didn't know how to do my hair. 
So every Saturday, she would take me to the salon, our local salon, a staple black salon in our, in our neighborhood, and I would get my hair done there. And I loved it. I mean, I just loved, you know, it was really back in the day. So you go to the hair salon, you're there like all day. <laughs> you know, your appointment's at 10, but you're really not leaving until like four because you're not even into the chair until maybe around noon. And I loved it. I loved it. I loved watching all the black women come in and getting their hair done, the transformations, the video music, you know, people coming and selling, selling things. I loved everything about it. But what I have to say is my mom, my mom encouraged me because I would come home after being at the salon, you know, and we, I would have my dolls or I would plant her hair. And I, one day I, I started braiding her hair and she's like, and my mom doesn't know how to braid. <laughs> she literally just learned how to braid two years ago. So when I say she didn't like know nothing about hair and she, she was like, who, who taught you how to braid? Did you learn this at the salon? I was like, no, I was just, well, I've been watching the ladies when I go and I just figured it out. And my mom was very impressed. And she was like, I think you really have talent because you can watch something. And so that happened several times. I'd see something in the salon that someone was doing and I'd come home and try it on her and I, I would do it well. And my mom really encouraged me. She's like, you know, you have a gift. This is this is great. So I did all my aunt, you know, my auntie's hair, my mom's hair. I was the person who did everyone's hair. And that is my entryway into how I fell in love with hair. It's just being in the salon every day, you know, thank goodness my mom didn't know how to do my hair because <laughs> that's what opened me up to this this whole new world. And also having a parent that really encouraged me that, oh, that's you, you have something. This is this is this is really nice. Okay. You mentioned that you're from DC. Where mm-hmm. did you go to undergrad? Okay. So I actually went <laughs> I actually went to to undergrad in West Virginia. Yeah. Why? Uh, <laughs> I went to Shepherd University. Okay. West Virginia. Yeah. I went to West Virginia. I, you know, it was actually my mom and some friends were like, you know, maybe it would be nice to have a different cultural experience. Mm-hmm. My, my mom is the one who actually found this university. It was a, a private university. And yeah, she was like, I think that that it would be a nice experience. And honestly, it did shape, it did shape a lot of things. (laughs) Very white, very different, very country. But I learned a lot about myself during that time. A lot. I'm sure. And how did you, what was your hair experience like there? Even finding products? Well, you know, hair never left me because I worked, so, you know, I worked in this lawn from the age of 14 and, you know, and I, I went to, uh, under so even I got my cosmetology license while I was in high school because I did everyone's hair. My my principal, I do feel blessed because when I speak to other people about the fact that I grew up, you know, I grew up seeing a lot of black people in high positions. All of my vice prin- uh, principals and pr- principals were black women or black men, and so my principal was a black woman, Miss King, who I'm still in contact with to this day. And she saw the potential in me and she's like, Sierra, there is a secondary kind of like vocational school that has opened up a cosmetology department. And I think you'd be great for it. You know, so she wrote me a recommendation letter. She also organized for a bus to pick me up from after I finished high school to take me to that school. And so I would go and take my cosmetology classes after school. So I had my cosmetology license once I graduated at 17. And I have been working in the salon, this, the, the same local salon that I grew up in. I was working there, apprenticing, and as the shampoo girl, then as the assistant, kind of just worked my way up all through high school. Then I moved to college, and I found a salon there that was actually so in West Shepherd University. It, although it's in West Virginia, it does border Virginia, so it's about thirty minutes away from like the Virginia borderline. And so mm-hmm. I found the salon in that area in Winchester, Virginia. And it was actually an Aveda salon. 
And I knew Aveda products because I had heard about To Be Shorter, who was like the first Black woman that I had heard of who, you know, because at that point, there weren't really Black brands like how we have here. There weren't really brands that were talking about the natural hair movement and these things. But Aveda, at that point, had hired To Be Shorter, who is an amazing Black hairstylist, and they hired her as their texture expert, and she represented the brand. And so because of hearing about them, I was like, oh, I would love to work in the beta salon. Long story short, I continued my journey with hair all throughout college with working in that salon, and that's and I used their products. But I was able to find... It wasn't like it, it was now, because I was natural. My hair was natural, and I was testing all the things, but it was a time that everyone was testing all the things because we didn't have Cantu and Shea Moisture and all that. Like Miss Jessie's had kind of come, started coming out at that point. So mm-hmm. I, I would get Miss Jessie's when I would go back home, you know, because it was only like a, an hour and a half, two hour drive back to DC. So I would get Miss Jessie's. I would try, I was concocting and making things in my kitchen. It was the beautiful, you know, going natural hair movement time where, you know, where women were exploring with all different types of products. But I did like working in the salon because the Veda products didn't really work for all hair textures. And so, and they had already had a hairline that was, that had embraced curls and, and, and the kind of moisture that we need and things of that nature. I did want to reverse back to you mentioning that you were a shampoo girl. You know, I've always been curious about like the hair salon hierarchy. Like what are the roles in a hair salon. And you mentioned moving up. Like, what, what was that like in the salon? Oh, well, I mean, I grew up in a traditional black salon first. And then I once I once I was licensed and things, and once I moved away to college, then I worked in, I would say, more, well, pretty much luxurious, kind of expensive salon, spas and salons. And those were usually, I was usually the only black men in those salons. So, and it is similar and a sense, although I will say that I had a privilege in the fact that I could do all hair textures and that I could style hair because in traditional black salons, you start off as a shampoo girl, which is you are not just attached to one hairstylist, you're attached to the salon. So anybody's client that needs their shampoo done, their deep conditioning done, detangling, rinsing out relaxers, you know, hot oil treatments, that's what a shampoo girl would do. And then once you've proved that you understand, and I think that this is it's really interesting because it's something that you don't, it's not the same knowledge. I'm so happy that I started out in the black salon because knowing how to properly shampoo hair mm-hmm. is something that I find even people now today genuinely don't know how to properly shampoo hair. Because, mm-hmm. because when, when as a shampoo girl, I said shampoo girl, you know, for probably honestly, a solid year. I also was 14. So, you know, a solid year, but I was coached like how to properly shampoo hair, you know, like really the steps to properly shampooing hair. And I, when I worked in the traditional, more, you know, higher end luxury, luxury salons, like no one was actually really teaching them steps of how to properly shampoo hair. And like, if someone's hair is thicker and if someone's hair is coarser and it more textured, like how do you properly shampoo hair and what are the steps? And if someone's hair, it, you know, and they come in and they've just taken braids out, they've just taken out a specific salon, what are the steps to shampooing the hair so that it's not tangled and you don't have this like dreadlocks coming out of the scalp and things. And you don't really learn that in the other, in the other salons. So also in traditional back salons, you know, you, so shampoo girl, then you become the assistant. And so you can become, you know, it's like a basic assistant where you are 
everyone's assistant, meaning when the client comes in, you prep the client, you put the cape on them, you kind of have a, a mini consultation with them, asking them what their needs are, and then you relay that back to the stylist. And then you may start off with the process of after they have, they've had their hair shampooed, okay, roller sets, you know, so, you know, a, a hair assistant is going to do the, the roller, roller set for the, for her, the stylist. And it is kind of similar and within the other traditional salons as well, non-black salons. However, what I think is the big biggest difference between the two is that process of in the black salon, everyone has to learn how to style hair. Mm. Where in traditional non-black salons, it's you're kind of in a cat- category of you're a color specialist, you do cutting, you know, you or you know, or you focus on treatment, you know, different treatments, so like keratin treatment or you know those kind of things, where in black salons, you need to know how to do everything. <laughs> you need to know and you need to know how to style because no one is coming to a salon. They don't care how great you do their color. You, they need to leave with a hairstyle. Mm-hmm. Where when I went into more traditional, my, my more traditional, not, you know, path of kind of more whiter salons, it was very much, okay, yeah, I only do color. And then their assistant would do the blowouts and their assistant would do the actual styling, but they didn't do any styling, you know, or the person who did the cuts, but they didn't actually do any styling. They would just like, you know, rough blow dry the hair. So it's very interesting seeing the dynamics. I'm sorry if I've, I've gone off topic. This is obviously a very interesting question to me. <laughs> I love it. Thank you. Please go as long as you need. Do you find now that there are more people who know how to do all types of hair or has anything changed on that landscape since you started out? It has changed in the States. Mm-hmm. I see the change coming. I see more and more stylists who are not Black really knowing how to, step one, properly wash hair, because <laughs> I'm telling you, you'd be surprised, properly wash, you know, textured hair and knowing how to take, actually take care of it, knowing how to detangle it, all the steps that come along with textured hair and knowing how to style it. And those styles not only being heat, with heat, you know, knowing how to style with a natural state. So I see the changes. It's not at, at, at nowhere near where it should be, but I have seen the changes. However, on the European front, no. On the European front, it's it's like it it is genuinely as if non-European hair doesn't exist. It's actually quite surprising to see Europe is quite behind when it comes to when it comes to the states in the space of beauty of when it comes to being up to date. Not saying they don't have a great foundation within beauty, but just being up to date to the needs of the public. It's because it's a very much more a traditional, a traditional type of path here where the states is not connected to tradition. We are really are, you know, we keep the ball moving. So I think that that is what makes a difference. I don't see enough non-black stylists knowing or knowing how to take care of, of black, you know, textured hair. And I don't see enough of it in the states, but I don't see any of it here. And I say that for all of Europe, not just in, in Paris, in France, but just in all of Europe, is as it's, it's as if the demographic of people who have textured hair do not even exist. They're not even on. They're not even on the list. They're not even in the book. You know, so it, it's sad. It does definitely saddens me to be very honest, which is why I'm I'm really dedicated to trying to make a change with that, and it's a change that needs to happen. But I see the growth. In the states, however, the only growth that I've seen in the states within supporting artists, black artists, 
who know how to do all hair textures. You know what's okay, I'm gonna say this really quickly. You know what I find very interesting is that most black artists, and when I say hairstylists and makeup artists, are overqualified for their jobs because we come into the game knowing how to master all hair textures and all skin tones. Okay. Mm-hmm. And our fellow counterparts who are signed with agencies, who are working with the celebrities, only know how to do European. That's it, you know? And yet they are they are gifted these, you know, they, they are given the covers, the the access and the and the praise for doing the bare minimum. Mm-hmm. For only knowing how to do what's in their comfort zone and also what they've grown up with. And only since Black Lives Matter have I seen the embrace of Black artists who and giving them seats at the table in the state side, not really here, but in the state side, giving them seats at the table that they deserve because you're actually overqualified. We are overqualified. We know how to do it all, which would make sense money-wise. It's like, oh, we'll hire an artist who can do everything. You know, you have these models. This person can take care of all their skin tones. They can take care of all the hair textures. And that just wasn't done before. And we're starting to see it happen now, slowly. Okay, I'm so long-winded. You ask me a question, you can tell I'm a talker. <laughs> love it. What is a podcast without talking, okay? <laughs> this is true. This is true. I have a lot to say on this topic. <laughs> and that's why you're here. So I wanted to touch on, well, you touched on it, is that there is a need for everyone to have the ability to do hair beyond what is the European standard. And I saw that you recently graduated from a program in instructional design, and you mentioned that you wanted to work on DE&I initiatives. So could you talk more about that? Oh, absolutely. So I'm quite proud of myself, to be honest. I did a thing. I did a thing. (laughs) I challenged myself, you know, well, COVID came. So before COVID even came, I was already trying to, well, I was already freelance educating as an educator with different brands. So I was educating and more in a capacity of being an educator with these brands where I'm teaching in detail about their products, product knowledge, and also, you know, hairstyling. Okay. So that's what I was doing. And then I started getting asked by brands to create curriculum, you know, and that actually started even, you know, a little bit before COVID happened. And I loved the idea of brands being like, okay, we need to change our curriculum of what we are, our programs of what we're actually teaching and what we're being interested in, but we don't really know where to start. Okay, let's let's hire this person to help us. And I had never created an educational program from start to finish. I knew what needed to be done. I knew what was missing. And that, I, I realized, it was a beautiful space for me because my gift has always been knowing how to do hair, you know, and it just being easy for me. That has always been my gift. It didn't. Ha- that's the one thing I never had to really study and work hard for. And like, you know, it just came to me. And I, I figured in life, you just get one gift and that's it. And I'm okay with that. <laughs> and then I started educating and being on this. And I was an educator for a brand here in Europe. And I, I was there, a European educator. And I'm traveling all over Europe and I'm on stages. And I'm going to different headquarters and teaching. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is, this is really a gift. I'm good at this. I'm good at this naturally, and I love it. I genuinely love it. There is a, a pedagogy side of me that I didn't know was really there, which is crazy because I come from teachers. My mom's a teacher. My aunt's a teacher. So I come from a family of, of teachers and 
and, and, and my uncle's a writer, you know, so I come from that, that, that path of, you know, people educating, but I never, ever thought I'm like, I'm an artist. I'm not an educator. I'm an artist. <laughs> so that is what opened me up to that. And then COVID came and I was completely sh- just thrown <laughs> because it stopped everything, you know, it stopped everything, work slowed down. And it's, it has taken longer on the European side to recover than it has more on the state side. So I had already had this bug in my head of like, I really want to try and transition to, into more education, but I'm not sure how to do that because I love what I'm doing. And I'll, you know, this is also paying my bills. And how do you, how do the two coexist financially, number one, but also number two, you know, with, with my passions, how could I make this a, th- a thing? So the brand of Ada asked me to create some curriculum for them on a freelance, on uh, a freelance contract and, uh, you know, build a class for them. And I built a few classes for them and taught them. And they, the, 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 it was, they loved it. It was great. I loved putting it together. They loved it. Great feedback. And I said, okay, I think that the disconnect within these companies is that, you know, having conversations and on a freelance capacity, you're speaking to so many people once you get these contracts, you're speaking to the person who's head of education. And then the person, you know, who's head of an education department as well. And, you know, who's head of global education. And so you're, you're getting to speak to all these people. And what I noticed is that number one, there's pretty much zero diversity within these rooms. The people who are making the decisions on education within these brands, which trickles down to everything, because if it, I mean, it, it all is connected. But to stay on the topic before I get to that part is that I'm noticing there's zero diversity, and they're also these are all people who have zero experience actually within beauty. You know, these are just. I call them corporate heads. These are just corporate heads, you know, who've gone to school for business or marketing or, you know, not even really education in a sense, and have gotten these jobs with these beauty companies and making decisions about what the client needs, also what the people they're hiring needs, you know, what, what they need within their departments, what aligns with their brand messaging and education, and yet they have they have no experience. And that's why it's disconnected. You know, they're not even including, I haven't even thought about diversity because they're not, they're not in the field. They, they're not artists. They don't have any experience within that side of things. And in my mind, that, that is a problem and that, that, that's a root, a certain, one of the roots of the problem. And so I started, you know, creating this curriculum and I was like, I love doing this. I think that the real change is getting different people in those rooms because in my mind, you get someone at the table like me. First of all, who's a black woman who is has a well, you know, well diverse history when it comes to all hair textures, who this is this is her business is her art, well traveled, working different, you know, understanding the European market, but also understanding the North American market. And then and someone who understands relating to clients. And that's the person who's gonna be able to make the decisions of okay, when our education program, you know, curriculum for 2019, it needs to be aligned with our brand. If our brand says that we create hair products for all hair textures, why are our education programs not representing that? Why are we still hiring people to represent our brand who who don't align with the brand messaging. You know, it it doesn't make sense if your brand has, you know, if your brand has or says that they re- they represent diversity and they're they're all about inclusion and they actually have products for all hair textures, but yet they're the people who work for them are not capable of doing anything outside of European hair. And genuinely who most of the time are not even interested. Okay, so that was my thought process. I'm thinking through all these things and I'm like, I, I think, I wish, I, there, must, there has to be a job of someone who creates education programs and curriculum. Like there has to be a job 
that, that that has to exist. And so I started doing my research because, as you know, I'm a researcher. I love studying things, <laughs> if you haven't picked that up already. And so I was like, oh, instructional design. I had never heard of instructional design in my life. And I was like, oh, this makes sense because you usually hear about instructional design within universities because these are people who, you know, who build university programs. So you hear more side instructional design on that end. But instructional design obviously works pretty much for any any company, you know, and, and it works also within the beauty industry because they are educational programs as well. And I was like, this is exactly, this is exactly what I want to do. That to me is where I see change, but also where I see growth for myself and an understanding of how I can achieve certain things. So I wanted to actually go back to school in, in English. <laughs> that was my goal. But there are very few English programs here in, in Paris. And all of the ones that I found, unfortunately, the deadline had already passed and I would have to wait another year. And I want to take advantage of the fact that COVID's here and I have more time and I can do this. So I was like, okay, I'm going to take the step and go with the French university. And so I applied with the French university and I was accepted. And the great thing with the French university is it's free. And I, well, the program was the program because when you do any program outside of a very traditional path of schooling, there is a small charge nothing compared to the States. So I, I call it free because it's like, to me, 400 euros a month for to go back to go to school is like not really a lot of money. But I was able to get it for free because I, I found a program where you can apply through the government for, for them to, to pay for your schooling. And I submitted, because I love to research once again, I found this program and I submitted an application and explained, you know, you know my goal and all that. You kind of like write out almost a business plan and they accepted me and they, they paid for my schooling and they gave me a small stipend every month while I was going to school. And so, yeah, so I went back to school for instructional design, which in French is called ingénieur, responsable pédagogique. It sounds very, you know, fancy in French. It's like, oh, engineer. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, I went back to school. It was, I'm not going to lie, it was challenging. Although I speak French fluently, going back to school for something that not, is not really, I mean, I, I have experience within the beauty world when it comes to education, but obviously this program is just instructional design. So it's just building education programs and it's not geared towards the beauty industry. So it's very much outside of my comfort zone. I learned a lot. I don't regret at all doing the program because I everything that I needed to learn, opening up my eyes to kind of what the interworkings of corporate world and behind the scenes and building programs and things. So, okay. So I did that and I graduated. <laughs> I graduated recently in, in October. I did it in silence. I didn't, I didn't tell, I only told a few friends that I was going back to school and a few family members, but I didn't want to put it on my social media and I didn't want to totally talk about it too much until it was done. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so now I have this degree in instructional design and I am in the, I'm, the whole point is just to bring it all together. I want to restructure the educational programs within the hair industry and the beauty brands. You know, I really, uh, it is needed. Mm-hmm. And I truly believe that it's the best of both worlds. I am the best of both worlds. That sounds really cocky, but I'm just telling you the truth. Yeah. Yes, you, you've explained, we understand. You are accurate <laughs> in your description. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, you know, listen, people take, you know, this, this is also a thing that's interesting because as soon as you kind of, this has been living in France too long, as soon as you say that you're good at something, or, you know, you're proud of something that you've done. You know, there's kind of this thing like, she's kind of cocky. But the truth of the matter is, I believe wholeheartedly, I'm so happy to 
to be kind of moving. It's, it's a little daunting, to be honest, moving to the space of trying to get more into education and less into being a hairstylist and that transition that I'm trying to make. But I truly believe that this is my next path and passion. And I'm really excited to see what this year brings. I'm excited for you. That sounds amazing. Especially the researching part about how to figure out to get this program paid for and a stipend. Well, listen. Listen, if you, all my friends, I am the researcher and all my friends, they need, they're like, okay, Sierra, there's this thing. I'm like, I'm like, see if Sierra's on it, we, she is going to research it out and find a way. I love that. I I genuinely love researching. It's my thing. (laughs) Well, you mentioned that you've worked with Aveda and you're working with them now. How do you maintain these relationships with these brands? Like, it sounds like you had a longstanding one with this one. You know, I will be very honest and transparent that it is difficult to, with some of the goals that I have being based in Paris. You would think that it sounds great on paper, but in reality, a lot of these brands, it's the global side, which are the global side is based in the States or North America. And those are, that's the side of the brand that is is open to change and sees potential and is also has the budget and things of that nature. So I would say that Aveda Global is the one, it's easy to keep a relationship with the brands on their global headquarters because that American culture of being open to change and looking for the next thing and also and make money. Money talks. They know that they, they see the connection. Okay, if we could add this, it means a whole other demographic. Now we're bringing a whole other demographic, which means a whole other demographic of coins as well. Where Europe is very traditional. It's still a traditional, very, very attached to well, this is kind of what we all we have always done. And so I have struggled more trying to create relationships with those same brands that are based here than with global. So most of my relationships have been simply because I'm American and I can get those kind of contacts and speak English with the global part. But it is a beautiful thing to have relationships with brands and to be able to pitch ideas and to be heard and to be embraced and to see some inkling of change. And now another point of curiosity for me is, so you're a global hairstylist. You travel to your clients. Do you speak any other languages? I do. <laughs> it's quite surprising. I do. Okay. I speak Romanian. So I, yes, which is very, very random. And when, when I meet Romanian people and they see a black girl, like coming out of her mouth, they're like, they are mouth open, cannot blows their mind. I will have to say though, that because of the pandemic the past two years, I have not practice my Romania as much as I used to because I used to be a lot more social and within Romanian communities and traveling there. But yeah, Romania is my third language and I love it. It's such a beautiful language. And I, it's a culture that I learned about randomly. And because once again, I'm a researcher, I didn't know anything about these people and someone was talking about them. And here I am like spending nights researching their history and reading about it and then went to the country and and I was like, oh my God, then then heard the language. I was like, oh, I think I want to learn the language. And random, what my life is about. <laughs> it's amazing. It's actually very awesome. It sounds like Italian. It's a very, it's a very beautiful language. So are you ready to play faux or fashion? Yes. Okay. So basically, it's a trivia game. I'm going to read you three fashion headlines, and you're going to tell me whether the headline is a true story, so fashion, or a false story. 
false. I pulled up out of my head. It's not true. First question. In 1950, it was recorded that only 5% of women dyed their hair. Today, 75% of women dyed their hair. Is that faux or fashion? I'm going to say, I'm going to go ahead and say that's fashion. This is true. So (laughs) more women are dyeing their hair. You know, I haven't dyed my hair lately. I haven't dyed my hair since like high school. Like I just live with my gray hairs and put wigs on top. So. <laughs> <laughs> Me too, honestly. I'm kind of embracing. I mean, I have got, I have got some, but you can't really see it when it's like textured. To be honest, only when it's straight, I can see it. But I'm just, I'm just embracing it. Mm-hmm. And more women are dyeing their hair today. Fun fashion statement yes. colors. Mm-hmm. In the 50s, it was just to restore their natural hair color. So. That's from the Encyclopedia article on hair history. (laughs) Love this, love this. Okay, next question. Marc Jacobs had 37 models dye their hair varying shades of pastels for his New York Fashion Week show. 37 models. Is that faux or fashion? I'm going to go ahead and say that it's it's fashion. I can believe that. Of course. So, of course, Marc Jacobs requested that this uh, be a part of his creative direction for the show. And Josh Wood of Redkin, he had a quote in this article from Refinery29. I've never worked on anything where there was so much willingness to try new things. This is the biggest color project I have ever worked on. Yeah, that was 2018. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, I, I, it's kind of crazy when you think about asking a model to change their hair color, especially into pastel colors, because that, that's, that's a deep process of bleaching and all that. But anything for fashion. I think it's more crazy because it was in New York Fashion Week and these models had a whole month of shows. Uh, a whole month of shows. Like, woo, girl. <laughs> <laughs> I love that, though. I love it. And our final question you already won, so this is for fun. Final question. Grazia Magazine photoshopped away actress Lupita Nyong'o's ponytail, making her appear bald as she was on the cover of their magazine. Is that faux or fashion? Photoshopped her ponytail away. I feel like I've, I've, read, I've, I've, I've seen, because I like her a lot, I've seen a lot of her covers. I don't think that that's true. It is true. It is. Oh gosh, I haven't. Now I want to. Now you know the researcher. I mean, it's like Google. You said it was Priyank, Priyanka. No, Lupita. Oh, Lupita. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, now look. I thought you said Priyanka. I don't know why I thought Pri- Priyanka. Okay, but Lupita. Yes, I remember that because that was a whole thing. And Vernon did her hair, and it was like, why did you change the entire? Genuinely erased the hairstyle that she had. Now, yeah, I do. Now that I remember. Okay, I don't know why Lupita sounded like Priyanka. Priyanka. That's Maybe I said it weird. I don't. Know. <laughs> no, I don't know. <laughs> I genuinely was in here like googling what is uh, Priyanka. <laughs> Enunciate, Michaela. Oh, no, no, no. It's okay. Okay. Yes, yes. I remember that because she called them out on her page yeah, she and the hairstyle out on out. Twitter for enforcing their Eurocentric standards on them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. That was the final. Well, I feel like I should give you that point because you misheard the question. <laughs> I will take the point, but listen, I'll take the point being get away. Maybe it's my ears, you know, age. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me this gloomy. What day is it even? I'm in quarantine. I was about to say Saturday. <laughs> it, <laughs> it is Tuesday, but it feels like a it feels like a slow Saturday, you know? It doesn't feel like a Tuesday. This is some sort of time warp. 